said, my name is uh, Rodney Collins. I'm associate pastor at West Springfield Covenant Community Church, along with our senior pastor, Pastor Rob Hill, whom I understand has uh, preached among you. And uh, it is a joy for me to be here today with you. Um, as uh, I uh, get along uh, in uh, my years, uh, I'm more and more struck by uh, the beauty and the preciousness of the body of Christ, especially as we experience it in the Reformed faith in terms of the connection that exists between congregation and uh, the fellowship that elders have as they meet regularly uh, to do the work of the church in presbytery and, uh, and as pastors have to meet uh, in, in church courts in various uh, ways. And I'm so appreciative of your pastor, uh, Matthew Kerr. Uh, what a great blessing he is uh, to you and to us and um, thankful for this congregation and thank you for uh, the invitation that was extended to me to come. Uh, you, uh, we, we are all celebrating the wonderful news that has taken place this uh, past week uh, that took place on Friday and the joy of knowing that uh, a very terrible uh, Supreme Court ruling was overturned. And uh, we, I remember uh, in the year 1973 it was the year that that ruling took place, and I remember I was, that was the year I graduated from high school, uh, really dating myself there. But uh, that was, uh, it, I, it is quite the thing to think that uh, just uh, this past Friday, uh, the court may reverse that decision. I'm so thankful for that. Thankful as well for General Assembly, which took place uh, this past week, and uh, some, I think, uh, momentous decisions were made. I'm not sure how, uh, uh, how knowledgeable you are of uh, the various things that uh, have been uh, debated at General Assembly, and I'll let your pastor say uh, more about that, but uh, just thankful for the General Assembly, and what, it was a good General Assembly. Uh, some good things were, were done. Uh, enough said on that, but uh, with those words, I invite you to turn with me to your Bibles to uh, Psalm 119. It's my understanding that uh, Pastor Kerr is preaching uh, from a text in Malachi, which uh, I will take to be a sign that you are going through the book of Malachi, and uh, we in West Springfield uh, got the idea somehow or other of preaching through Psalm 119. And so we are in uh, Psalm 119, verses uh, 137 through 44 is the are the verses we're going to look at uh, this morning. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles as we read God's holy word. Uh, just uh, to make a link with the, um, the, the prior section, uh, in which uh, mention is made of the unfolding of the word of God and a prayer is made at the end of uh, the previous section, actually verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. 
And then we have uh, the section that we're going to read beginning in verse 137. I want to just make that link between the idea of the face of God and the uh, passage we're going to read now. Hear the word of God. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right in your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, and yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So ends the reading of this portion of God's word. Let's uh, join together in prayer one more time. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Give us, we pray, your understanding that we may properly apply these verses to ourselves. Grant, O Lord, the working of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, for we are utterly dependent upon him. Bless, we pray, this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, righteous commandments of God, or God's righteous law, Uh, As uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, you remember that Timothy was reminded by Paul of the things that had been taught to him in those scriptures that he had learned. Well, Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 were a reference to the Old Testament and to the law of God as uh, the Old Testament was often referred to. And so as we think of Paul's words to Timothy, that he speaks of the scriptures and their value to Timothy. So I would like for us to be reminded this morning of how precious and how wonderful it is that we have the Bible, that we have the word of God, that we have the scriptures which are a revelation to us from God. They tell us what God is like. And not only do we learn from the scriptures what God is like, but they teach us what we are to be and what he wants us to become through faith in Jesus Christ and through the working of his Holy Spirit. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in asking the question in question 160 as to how we're to hear the word of God, part of the answer is this. We are to receive the truth with faith and love and meekness, readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer on it. Hide it in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of it 
in our lives. The word of God is the means by which the Lord Jesus Christ from his heavenly throne rules his church. The Lord rules his church through the word that he has spoken and which we have in our Bibles. And he applies that to our hearts by the working of his Holy Spirit. I'd like to just have us uh, link for a minute to the idea of the Aaronic blessing. You remember that Aaron's, the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, says something about the face of God. It says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face shine upon you. And we have that language in the previous section, as I noted a minute ago. The psalmist prays in verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant. The shining of God's face is that which he prays for, and then he prays for the Lord to reveal himself through his word, that he might be instructed in his word. And I think we can take from that that the face of God comes to us we see the face of God as we read his word. Now the face of God is an indication of something of the glory of God. That God's glory was revealed and has been revealed all throughout salvation history. And most importantly, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to make a connection to this later that it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are confronted with the very glory of God. And that face of God is revealed in the righteousness of his word. As the psalmist asks the Lord to give him further understanding of his word in the section we're considering this morning, it is the righteousness of God and the righteousness of his word that comes to his mind as he considers how God has opened his mind to understand something of the nature of God and of his word. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You may have a translation that says, right are your judgments. And so the uh, righteousness of God is mentioned in a and, and I'm going to make uh, uh, three major uh, points under this consideration of the righteousness of the word of God. And then I want to take us to our response to that righteousness. So first of all, the righteousness of the word of God, the righteousness of God in his word is the source of great strength and consolation for the believer. Consider the fact that we live in a world, and we experience even in our own hearts often, great turmoil. We live in a world in which there is turmoil all around us. We experience it even in our own emotional life and mental life at times. Uncertainty. Uh, all about. And uh, the world does not know. Uh, the, the, the world in which we live 
for the most part, is unacquainted with the God of the Bible. And they don't know of a God who made the world and who governs it by his sovereign decree. They don't know about that, and that's how it is that laws about uh, enshrining abortion could be made. Is that they have forgotten that God created man in his image. And we live in a world that is very lost at sea. But the word of God is like a rock. It is like something that is sure. As a matter of fact, we read in uh, the Song of Moses these words in Deuteronomy chapter 23. uh, Moses says, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Notice there the language about God. He is a God of faithfulness. He's without iniquity. He is just and upright. And Moses refers to God as the rock. He is the rock in a world of instability. He is the one to whom we may entrust our minds and our hearts. And God's righteousness is the source then for the one who loves him of great strength and consolation. The word that is translated righteousness in the Bible means conformity to a norm or a standard. And that norm and that standard is nothing other than God himself. There's no standard above him to which he must conform. Ezra prays, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. You are righteous. We are left as a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, We are before you in our guilt, for none of us can stand before you. Ezra 9, 15. The psalmist, thinking of standing before God and the righteousness of God, says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? God is righteous. He is holy. He is just. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your judgments. Of all mankind and of you and me, the Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. As for man's hope of happiness, as far as that goes, the righteousness of God forms an insurmountable barrier to us. We are unrighteous, God is righteous. And yet, the scriptures say that God is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And it is exactly that line that God is merciful, he is faithful, he is just, He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means clear the guilty. The righteousness of God 
is then becomes the trait by which he comes to rescue the poor. It is an interesting thing that in Israel, injustice prevailed. And it was one of the reasons that God brought uh, uh, judgment upon uh, the nation of Israel. And uh, the judges of Israel were to do no injustice. They were not to be partial to the poor, nor were they to defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Leviticus 19.15 The Lord then is one who as a just judge comes to the aid of those who are fatherless and poor in Israel. The prophets speak of a day in which righteousness will prevail. And the poor and the needy will have a judge who rescues them from the ruthless, the unjust, and the powerful. The psalmist says in Psalm 10, verses 13 and 14, you, speaking to God, you do see. You see all of the injustice in the world. You do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. God reveals himself as the one not only who is perfectly righteous in all he does, and to that extent we are uh, find ourselves as sinners before him. Yet, Inasmuch as we find ourselves poor, inasmuch as we find ourselves without any other help but God himself, and inasmuch as we find ourselves casting ourselves upon the compassion and the mercy of God, we are able by God's mercy to cast ourselves upon him, and he is a God who will rescue He is a God who will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin to all who cast themselves upon him. And so I invite you this morning, cast yourself upon the Lord God Almighty, whatever it is you're facing in your personal life. Each of us is a world unto ourselves. Each of us knows our own hearts and our minds. We know the tumult that we live with, the difficulties, sometimes great sorrows overwhelm us. Cast yourself upon the Lord. He is righteous. And because he is righteous and he is faithful to his word, he will rescue you if you will trust in him and turn to him as the provider as the one who uh, reveals himself as the one who is compassionate and merciful and the one who cares for his helpless children. It is that condition of helplessness that he uh, brings us to. It is with that condition that we so often resist. Sometimes it takes years for us to be brought to it. 
but casting ourselves upon the Lord. The second thing I'd like to invite you to do is to consider that God's righteousness is revealed in his word and it, God's word is true. It can be relied upon. You have appointed, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness, he says. The righteousness of God revealed in his word is a righteousness of truth. God is uh, absolutely and fundamentally true in all that he says. It is impossible that he could say anything that is crooked or false. And the scripture reveals this in a number of ways. First of all, we find uh, those passages in which uh, the Hebrew word that means truth or faithfulness is used. And here's a passage that these are words spoken where God speaks to the uh, Assyrian king Sennacherib who thought he had great power over Jerusalem. God says to Sennacherib, and he says to every ruler and everyone who thinks himself powerful today, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I am bringing to pass. It was God who was using Sennacherib to accomplish his purposes in history, destroying kingdoms and threatening, yes, Jerusalem. But it was God's word that was coming to pass in human history. And it, so it is true today. Another passage from Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old. Plans formed of old. Faithful and sure. That which God does, he does because he has planned it. He has decreed it. And he brings it to pass most certainly. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And of course, so much of what is in Psalm 119 is uh, based upon, and a further reflection on Psalm 19, where we read these words, the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In everything God says, he speaks that which is true. Humans cannot be trusted to do what they say so often. Every time uh, we, uh, we so often find ourselves in position where we learn that afresh, don't we? We are not capable of that kind of consistency and truth and faithfulness which God has. Yet God is faithful. 
the writer of Proverbs says, all the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. The Apostle Paul says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So I would place before you this morning this fact that not only is God faithful, not only is God a rock in an uncertain in an uncertain world, God's word is true and it can be trusted altogether. And so he makes promises to you. You may put your confidence and trust in all that he says. And this brings us back to that confrontation with the glory of God. It is in the light of scripture that we see something of the glory of God, his truthfulness, God's righteous word is true. Thirdly, we see God's righteous word is eternal. I would note verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. And notice as well, uh, verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. God is the everlasting God. He is from all eternity. And that which he purposes, he does because he is God. And his righteous word is eternal. That is in contrast to all that is changing in our world. God's word never changes. And I think uh, it is a beautiful thing for us to consider, and I would have you consider that the word of God, uh, one of the aspects of the never changing word of God that is most precious to Christians in the new covenant is this, that the eternal word of God comes to us in the incarnate son of God that the Son of God, the eternal Son, who has existed from all eternity, became a man. He joined himself to us and took upon himself our nature. And when the Lord God comes to rescue the needy and the fatherless and the poor and those without any righteousness of their own, what does he do? He sends his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. It is God who sent his son to accomplish a righteousness for us that is eternal, that can never, ever fail. The author of Hebrews hits upon this again and again in consideration of the fact that the earthly priests of the old covenant were priests who were merely human and generation after generation died. But Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and his, his priesthood never ends because it is by the power of his life that is forever that he is able to uh, first of all, make a sacrifice for your sins which is sufficient 
because he is fully God, he is able to make a sacrifice for your sins that is infinite in value. And we are able to have confidence that our sins have been, uh, been uh, uh, that the justice of God has been met and that we are those who have been forgiven on the basis of the righteousness of God. That God is righteous in the forgiving of our sins. And not only is he able to offer a sacrifice, but he intercedes for us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is completely and at all times, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know that Jesus knows you by name? that he makes intercession for you by name, and that he knows not only your name, he knows every hair of your head, and that he knows your struggles, and that he loves you, and that he prays for you, and he will do so at all times. And there is never a time that you cannot come to him there's never a time when he does not have open arms for you. It is such a precious thing for us to know that he lives forever and he is able to save us to the uttermost at all times. There are times when we feel cast off. There are times when we feel that God is distant from us. But those are our feelings. Those are our feelings. And that's exactly what they are. They're not reflective of reality. The truth is, no matter how far we may feel from God, for the one who casts himself upon him, who comes to him in faith, he is ever, 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 always ready to receive you. What a wonderful thing. Isn't it our guilt that causes such pain and turmoil? And we wonder how God can be gracious to me, a sinner. It is the glory of the gospel. It is the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God is exactly displayed in the work of the incarnate Son on the cross for you and for me. That the righteousness of God is so wonderfully displayed in his constant and never-changing love that he never fails. He's the God of truth. He is a rock, and you may depend upon him at all times. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of righteousness, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 3, when he says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested, this righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he goes on to speak of how the Lord Jesus is presented as a propitiation by his blood to be received 
sacrifice made to show that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you know him as the one who loves you, guilty as you are, sinner as you are, if you will come to him in faith? He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so that brings us then to our response quickly to know that the writer of this uh, section begins uh, by speaking in terms of his response in terms of zeal. 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. Zeal. Zeal is that thing which the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer. Zeal to please God. Thankfulness for what God has done. It is a burning desire to please him, to do his will, and to live for him. J.C. Ryle writes, a zealous man is a man of one thing. He sees only one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. And so here we see this response in the psalmist. My zeal consumes me because of the faithfulness of God to me. He responds with this overwhelming burning desire that God would be honored, that God would be glorified. He feels a zeal that consumes him also because of the enemies that do not acknowledge God or his word. It bothers him. It fills him with righteous indignation that there are so many foes who forget God's word, who don't, who don't think of the, that the word of God as that which is a gift of God to us and it's something upon which uh, we can rest and rely as truth in an uncertain world. So that is the first thing that we see, zeal, a burning desire to please God. Secondly, a willingness to bear reproach. Notice that he says, um, he says, I am small and despised. I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. The psalmist says that uh, he uh, feels that others look upon him because of his zeal for the word of God, that others look upon him strangely. He's not accepted. Uh, he is, his, uh, his love for God and his word is, is ridiculed. And you may find that to be the case as well that you believe that the word of God is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, that it is trustworthy and true, and you rely upon it, you have cast your trust upon it, yet others may bring uh, reproach upon you for that, and that's exactly what the psalmist feels. He says, I am small and despised, yet he, in a dogged determination, he says, I will not uh, abandon your word. Uh, your law is true. Uh, you remember that in Psalm, this is a quote uh, from Psalm 69, in, uh, when he 
says that he's small and despised. This language comes from Psalm 69, verses 8 through 10. And it helps us to understand kind of what he's saying. Here's what it says in Psalm 69. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. You see, notice the linkage between zeal, zeal for God's glory and for God's house consume me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. And so it is, so it is the case that the person who is zealous to please God, who trusts in his word, will have times when he or she is the object of ridicule. Often that that takes place, and it certainly took place uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will happen with all who follow him. This was the experience of the psalmist. It was the experience of the psalmist, of of, uh, the Lord Jesus. And it will be the experience of all who trust in God's word. Recognize. I think we have to just recognize that this world is divided. It's divided between those who trust God's word and believe it to be true and those who don't. Those who don't. As we've seen, uh, we see something in the news even uh, over the weekend. Those who don't rage. They rage against God's eternal truth. There's a demonic raging that you can see, and, and this is experienced by the psalmist. Thirdly, delight in Scripture. Delight in Scripture. Notice that he says, Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. He experiences, uh, you you know, uh, the Christian life. Uh, The life for the psalmist was one in which he experiences not uh, ease and uh, comfort, uh, but rather trouble and anguish. The Holy Spirit works in times of trouble and anguish, to make God's word delightful to us. It is during these times often when we are most troubled and filled with anguish. It is during the trials that sometimes desolate us and uh, desolate our the other things that we may have looked to for <laughs> some happiness in this life. Uh, it is during the desolation of our hopes and our dreams in them that suddenly it seems to be the case that the things of this world begin to grow strangely dim. We realize there is nothing certain that we can trust in. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. So then with some great trial, perhaps illness, betrayal, or a financial reversal comes, breaks our world as we once knew it and shatters us, shatters our dreams. It is especially at these times of trouble and anguish when all the things that pertain to this world lose their luster and their promise and their shine. And we become, begin to realize that we have been maybe too earthly minded and driven by flesh 
is during these times that the promises of the Lord become especially precious to the believer. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commands they are my delight. The delight he felt in the Lord and his righteous scripture outweighed all his earthly sorrow and grief. So says the Apostle Paul. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly there could be many a reason to do so, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory. What a wonderful thing. Charles Bridges says, The first sheaf of the heavenly harvest will blot out the painful remembrance of the weeping seed time which preceded it. The first moment of heaven will compensate for all the troubles and the anguish of earth. And these moments will last throughout all eternity. And then finally, we notice not only delight during times of trouble and anguish, but we notice that in verse 144, he says, Give me understanding that I may live, and we see a prayer for illumination. This meditation on the righteousness of the word of God has led him finally to a confession of his absolute dependence upon God to open his scripture to him. Give me understanding. You must do it. You give me understanding that I may live. He seemed then to be brought face to face with God. He prays that the Lord will give him Light to understand and light, light and light. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. And I can't help but kind of land right here at the end. Where the Apostle Paul writes, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where do we see the light? the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the answer. If you will make God's word the object of your meditations, and if you will trust in him as you do so, and if you will pray, Lord, give me understanding, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be revealed to you because it is in scripture that we see the face of Christ. I hope, I hope that all of us will be encouraged to see what a precious and wonderful thing it is that God has revealed himself to us. 
in his written word. And in the written word is where we come face to face with Jesus. That's where freedom comes. That's, that's where life see scripture we understand scripture we the Lord gives us life in Christ may let the words of my mouth as the psalmist says and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O Lord my rock and my redeemer let us pray our gracious God and heavenly father we thank you for your word thank you that it is a sure thing and that you yourself are a rock, a trustworthy trustworthy in every way, faithful to all your promises we thank you for that future that we look to and long for we also thank you for those times of trouble and anguish release us from the hold of all that can be seen and open to us a world that cannot be seen. Help us, O Lord, to love you more, to love the things pertaining to Christ more and more, that we would love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.